Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 12, being recorded on Wednesday, February 3rd, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm good. Happy February. Happy February to you as well. 2016 is blowing by. It is. I am uh, up here in Toronto today, so I may do the show in Canadian if that's okay with all the listeners, eh? Yeah, it's uh, it's a loony idea. So you know what we don't talk about on this show very much, I thought we might talk about this week, is the kids in Seattle, what do they call them again, Amazon. Yeah, yeah. I thought you meant Microsoft there for a minute. Yeah, that would be Redmond. Ah, okay. Every time I feel like we covered Amazon last week and we're going to move on to other topic, Amazon finds a new way to make a new cycle. And I'm not sure they voluntarily did this one, but the big news this week was about Amazon potentially opening a chain of stores. Did you see that? Yeah, there was a CEO of that mall company. Um, you know, you're you're the mall guru, but I think it's general growth properties. And he kind of, during their earnings call, said something about, you know, it's we think it's interesting that Amazon's going to open 300 to 400 stores. So that caused quite a lot of excitement in both e-commerce and retail land. Absolutely. I think he, he was talking in general, you know, if you're the CEO of a mall company, you, you have to answer a lot of challenging questions to investors because there are people like me out there that are not super bullish on their future. And he was talking about the fact that digital was actually great for the malls because a bunch of the pure play retailers are transitioning to become omni-channel retailers. And he mentioned Warby Parker. And then, you know, he went on to say, and Amazon has plans to open three or 400 bookstores. And everyone was like, what? That did not seem like a scripted moment and seems very unlikely that Amazon, in if they do intend to open those stores, seemed unlikely that they pick Sandeep to make the announcement during. Yeah, and then I saw that was yesterday. And then today he kind of walked him back a little bit. He basically said, um, you know, I want to clarify things. My comments were, quote unquote, not intended to represent any of the online retailers plans. So I can just imagine the phone call that that Mr. Mathrani got from uh, from the folks in Seattle must must have been a fun conversation. Exactly. I'm pretty sure it was not Warby Parker that called him and tore his head off and caused the retraction. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if, you know, if this changes Amazon's plans, you know, maybe there's a lot of mall groups out there. So maybe, um, you know, maybe they'll divert some of their 400 stores to some of those guys as kind of a thank you for for spilling the beans. Yeah, that announcement has triggered a bunch of speculation in the industry about what Amazon's plans might be and why they might or might not open those stores. But one thing I'm assuming when he said three to 400 stores, he meant that he had some insight that that was Amazon's total plan for stores in malls. Uh, General Growth Properties doesn't have 400 malls. They have like 140, and only about half of them are what we would call the A malls that are the good-performing, high-revenue malls that have the you know more aspirational retailers as anchors. And so, you know, frankly, I will eat my microphone if Amazon opens more than 75 stores in General Growth Properties malls. Like, they just don't have the, the real estate that Amazon would be interested in. If they did four per mall, though, it kind of gets there. Fair enough. I had not considered that. That could totally happen. 
I do suspect, though, that whatever Amazon's plans were in that mall, that they're probably rethinking it a little bit or at least uh, making uh, general growth properties sweat it out at this point because I don't think Jeff likes those unintentional leaks. Yeah, and then that caused the reporters to dig in. And I saw um, Jason Del Rey over at Recode. He, earlier today, had some... Uh, some Amazon folks, they, uh, they didn't speak on the record, but he found out the guy that ran Kindle is kind of behind this effort. Uh, he's been behind the bookstore that's in Seattle too. So that's not like a huge secret, but also he did find that they do have plans to open more stores. There's a job opening for a Southern California bookstore. Uh, and then, uh, some of the ideas that he was able to ferret out, uh, is that they're going to focus on some interesting store innovations like um, RFID, where you just pick up the product and walk out with it, and it's automatically charged to your your Prime account. I would imagine. Um, I don't know how all that gets wired up. Um, and then I saw another report. This wasn't Jason, but um, this one started talking about how uh, Amazon wants to get good at logistics from kind of a fulfillment center into a store and. The speculation there was maybe they would talk about helping other retailers. Uh, a, yet another set of speculation I saw that was interesting was, um, you know, the thing that slowed down Microsoft and has kind of slowed down Google, not not totally, but to some degree, is when you get into this monopoly kind of a situation, right? Uh, and then a the DOJ or the EU comes at you and, you know, you fight the government. So this, this is kind of out there, but the speculation was that, if Amazon can make an argument that they're a store now and helping other stores, it could almost be an insurance policy against that by kind of showing that they're in a bigger competitive set, not just online, but, but all of e- all of commerce. Uh, and that they're actually kind of partnering with some retailers too. So kind of interesting to think through, you know, kind of speculation on top of speculation, but it's going to be very interesting to watch this going forward. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of permeations there. The antitrust protection only works if Amazon does not dominate physical retail like they have e-commerce, by the way. So there is that. I do think uh, Jason's <laughs> discovery of the, those job listings in San Diego, that clearly has some weight to the fact that there are probably plans to open more stores. And his speculation is that there's not a concrete plan to roll out hundreds of stores right now, but that that could be a future aspiration. And you could certainly imagine that folks at Amazon were were reaching out to potential partners to start evaluating what leases would look like and what sort of inventory was available and what kind of terms they could get. So I don't think any of Jason's stuff is incompatible with the potential leak. I, I do think it's interesting the, uh, I guess one other thing I should mention about the actual leak, he also mentioned that one of the reasons Amazon might want these stores is because so many consumers want to return e-commerce purchases in a physical store and that Amazon potentially needed a footprint of stores for returns and better customer service and things like that. So when I think about why Amazon might want to open stores, I can imagine there's a ton of advantages to them in doing so, but it can't be about selling books and it can't be the unit economics do not work to open a, a store in a mall and sell 5,000 book SKUs. And they, I mean, they yeah. would just have to like generate way more traffic and convert at a much higher rate than anyone else in the mall to, for that to be profitable. And so it, you know, if you go visit the store in Seattle, as I know you have, it makes way more sense that that store is about uh, introducing customers to the Amazon branded hardware like the Kindle and the Fire and and most notably the Echo, which we know they're investing Super Bowl ads in. So 
it could certainly make sense that they would open stores to support that hardware. They've had rough going getting other retailers to do a really good job of merchandising that hardware because they'll they've had a couple of starts and stops where, for example, they'd get Target to carry Kindle and then Target would realize that Amazon's a huge frenemy and decide to uh, not support the Kindle. And, and so you could imagine that Amazon needs their own stores to introduce the current hardware and new hardware they might have planned in the same way, frankly, that Apple needed to open their own stores originally, not because they necessarily thought retail stores were a great idea, but because there was no one else that was really interested in carrying Apple products and telling the Apple story the way they wanted it told. And so to me, that seems the most logical reason they would open stores. I certainly think there's these tangential benefits, like they could be little mini fulfillment centers. They could be, you know, uh, points of customer service. They could help Amazon with local SEO that we might talk about later. Some of those things. But all of those things aren't as appealing in the malls, which are hard to get to. Like a mall is not a convenient place to drive, park, walk in, and return your package. So I wonder if part of that, that plan would be stores in locations that are more convenient to shoppers than than malls. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, the, the Amazon bookstore was surprisingly unconnected to the online experience. It was kind of one unidirectional. So it was kind of like online down into the store. But as an Amazon Prime user, I couldn't pay with my Prime account. I You couldn't return products there. Um, the prices were synchronized, which was handy. Um, but other than that, that's kind of that one way kind of from online down into the store. It, it really wasn't this kind of bi-directional experience. So so I, I agree. I don't think the returns is the the nugget. I, I think it, they're going to look an awful lot like, you know, Microsoft stores, which look a lot awful lot like Apple stores. So I think that's going to be very much the direction. The one other interesting thing there, it's entirely possible that that first generation Amazon store is just that, a first generation store, and that we'll see better connectivity of online and offline in subsequent scores. And that was another point that uh, Jason Delray made in his article was he reminded us of these patents that Apple had, uh, or Amazon rather, had, had filed about six months ago that were about in-store technology and beacons and NFC. Um, and so you could imagine that Hey, maybe some of those things just weren't ready for this first store, but the you know subsequent stores or refreshes to that Seattle store might have heavier tech. I certainly hope that's the case because while I like the idea of dynamic pricing and matching the online and in-store pricing, I feel like the way that Amazon does it in their store right now is pretty kludgy that you have to have the Amazon app and you you have to individually scan it on those things and you you know you could imagine there's a lot of uh, lower friction ways that technology could help you get all those prices. I have read some speculation that Amazon likes that high friction system because it one thing it does do is it really helps Amazon tie that online to offline behavior. So a lot of retailers really struggle with knowing that same customer that that shopped their website also walked into the store. And because Amazon makes you fire up the app and scan products in the store, it's very easy for Amazon to relate your online shopping to your in-store behaviors. Yeah, um Totally agree. The uh, the other thing I saw that I wanted to pick your brain on, I saw this article in Business Insider, and um, it was kind of surprising because it said Apple stores are are kind of slowing down or, or causing the uh, you know, headwind on the growth rate uh, in upscale malls, and that didn't make sense to me because I've always heard they have like this outrageously great you know dollar per square foot, and the traffic and everyone I've ever been in, you have to like you know, push by 800 people just to get to buy your, your earbuds or anything like that. 
Um, did you see that one? And, and what, what did you make of it? I did. I don't think it's as big a deal as some people are making it out to be. Um, in general, Apple has has been the king in this this uh, one metric that some retailers really believe in called the revenue per square foot. And, you know, there are those that would say revenue per square foot isn't as important a metric as it once was because the revenue comes from so many different touch points now that it's, you know, it's not purely in store and that maybe that's not a very good way to count. But Traditionally, retailers have always relied on this metric, and for a decade, Tiffany's was the best revenue per square foot in the business at like around three thousand dollars a square foot. And Apple has consistently come in between three and four thousand dollars a square foot. So they, across all their stores, two hundred sixty stores or whatever it is now, they they have this really solid metric of of revenue per square foot, and that's way higher than most of the stores in the mall. So like general growth properties across all their stores, their average revenue per square foot is like six hundred dollars a square foot, and in their best mall, the whole mall average is like a thousand dollars a square foot. So so Apple way outperforms the average in any mall, and as a result of that. Apple's able to negotiate these great leases with the mall because Apple says, hey, we're the ones driving all the traffic to the mall and you need us and sales go up in the stores all around us when we come in. So I think Apple really likes its and benefits from its favorable position in those malls. Um, and so what this news was, was uh, this was General Growth Properties, that same announcement where the Apple, the Amazon store was leaked. They said that when you take out our anchor stores, so those big stores that in most cases aren't performing well because for general growth properties, those, you know, that historically was like a JCPenney or a Sears. Mm. That when you take out the big stores, when you just look at stores 10,000 square feet or under, that we, our malls actually grew this quarter and we grew by 3%. So, you know, everyone talks about how the malls are dying and, and general growth properties would say, yeah, but our malls are the top tier of malls and we grew at 3% if you don't count our anchor stores, which performed really badly. <laughs> so already kind of parsing things. And then they said this interesting quip. And if you don't count Apple, our 10,000 square foot and under stores would have grown at 4.5%. So everyone's like, wait a minute, App- Apple is dragging down your growth rate? And I believe them. I-, I don't have the data, but that could absolutely be true. But if it's true, it's true because Apple started at such high sales and have been growing for so many consecutive quarters and all of those other stores have been underperforming and not growing. So it's it's much easier to grow fast when you're starting with a low number than when you're starting with the highest number in the history of retail. And so, you know, Apple stores could still by far be the best performers in those malls and almost certainly are and still potentially drag down the growth rate. Hmm. Cool. I, I didn't realize it was that same company. They made a lot of friends this week, I guess. Yeah, well, if you're going to piss off uh, Jeff Bezos, you might as well piss off Apple in the same time. Uh, we have Tim Cook on line one and Jeff Bezos on line two. That would be a hard one. I'm not sure who I'd, who I'd answer first. Did you mention some other Amazon news outside of the mall? Yes, there's always more Amazon news. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, a super quick one was um, when you're a public company, you file these quarterly updates with the SEC called Qs, and then at the end of the year, you kind of wrap it all up in a K, uh, a 10K. Uh, and uh, Amazon always leaks some interesting little tidbits in there because they're required to, you know, do some things because of SEC requirements. Um, the big one this time was at, and, and this is pretty interesting. They updated a part of the 
the kind of boilerplate language they always use, which is the description of Amazon, and it's pretty generic. But this time they added three important words, and they, you know, with commas around it. Uh, so they'd go through this whole blurb about, you know, how Amazon is online uh, retailer, blah blah blah. Uh, and then this time they they added and a transportation service provider. So those those three words got a lot of people a flutter because. Um, on the conference call, they were they were very much downplaying the logistics stuff. But then this was very interesting that they now uh, describe themselves as a transportation service provider. So it kind of reversed all the stuff they downplayed, and now the speculation is back on about the whole Amazon logistics piece. That does, however, seem totally compatible with like some of the other news that you brought to our attention this this year regarding Amazon's aspirations in in logistics and transportation. Yeah, and. and um, just to kind of summarize that, you know, a lot of folks have kind of felt like, oh my gosh, they're going to compete with UPS this year. And, and that's, uh, you know, I'm kind of, when I talk about that happening, I think it's going to be a three-year arc. I think this year is largely going to be them taking over key parts of their own supply chain uh, from third parties. Uh, and then I think next year, you know, maybe uh, they do a lot more delivery to the home. And then the next year, I think they, you know, we, we could conceivably, you could ship me a package from Toronto using, you know, the Amazon uh, logistics, you know, whatever it's called, Amazon Air. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's going to be a, a, a multi-year arc, but I do think that they, and they, they've said things like during the conference call that you and I have talked about where they basically said, you know, at peak, we feel like there's not enough capacity. And, you know, if when I chart out their peak, um, their Q4 peak, kind of, you know, where it was, they get their next Q3. And then in, so in 17, uh, you know, or, or in, let me see, 16, both Q3 and Q4, like a prime day and, and then holiday would be kind of above capacity. And then if you kind of just Amazon's growing so fast and it's so big, by 2018, you know, I think most of the year would be over kind of current capacity. Current capacity in you, as, as I have discussed, is growing 6%. So there, there's definitely a problem there. Um, and I think that's another big driver of that. Yep. The, the last thing on Amazon, I, I promise it's the last one. Um, uh, there's a, what's interesting at Wall Street is um, most of the internet analysts track Amazon. So it's the same guys that do like Google and Yahoo, et cetera. They pick up Amazon. Which is good because you know they have an internet kind of a vibe for it. Um, one bank uh, is Wells Fargo, and the analyst is Matt Niemer, and he's one of the only ones that's actually a retail analyst that covers Amazon. Uh, and so I find his stuff to be interesting because he always comes at it from a retail angle versus an internet angle. Um, and uh, he said um, we talked about this uh, last quarter uh, in Q. Like I think November we talked about it, and he's the one that came out with that whole thing that said, you know, Amazon took forty percent of the incremental sales, um, if you recall. So that was like in Q three, and for Q four he updated and said, you know, that's up ten points from last quarter, and we believe that Amazon captured fifty one percent of the retail dollars. So what he does is he takes uh, the denominator of the U.S. commerce. Um, e-commerce report. Uh, it takes out some categories like autos and grocery and something else, CPG, I think. Uh, and then he takes Amazon's GMV from 1P and 3P, and he looks at kind of what the incrementality there. So so that, that's kind of interesting. Um, and he has a, 
a picture of that that we can put on on the blog as a tidbit. Uh, that's pretty stark when you look at the the growth rate there that Amazon and how much of, of overall sales they're soaking up. Uh, then he goes on to say that we estimate that Walmart will capture less than seven percent of all retail growth in Q4 uh, and nine percent of 15. So just to recap, Amazon did 51 percent for fourth quarter and 42 percent of all of 2015. So. Just kind of amazing how big Amazon is. I don't think people realize the scale um, because of the third-party marketplace. And you and I have talked about that, uh, and it, that's an interesting way of of kind of talking about it. It really underscores to me. You know, there are a lot of people that don't want to overemphasize digital, and they talk a lot about, hey, despite all the hype and stuff, it's still like seven to ten percent of all retail sales. But then you say, but wait a minute, one company alone is more than half of all retail growth, and you compare that with the 800-pound gorilla, a brick and mortar, is only getting 7% of that growth. That's very significant. Yeah, and in between the two companies, you've got like 57%. You know, So what's left for, for everyone else is kind of a, you know, pretty pretty interesting when you think about it. And I think um, a lot of these retailers that are struggling, certainly there's weather and currency and all that. But I, I think they're probably underestimating the impact Amazon's having on them because Amazon's not struggling from weather or currency, which is, you know, very if it was systemic then everyone would be yeah, feeling it they're selling the same goods yeah the same jackets and people are buying them there so exactly i i think you are absolutely correct and then uh in other earnings news we didn't uh this happened after uh, our last episode 11 uh google did report this week um the artist formerly known as google now known as alphabet and this was one that uh wall street was kind of giddy about because um you know, what, what happened is Amazon for the longest time wouldn't break out Amazon Web Services. They did, and everyone was blown away how profitable it was. And the stock took a pretty major leap forward as people were able to now kind of do a sum of parts analysis and say, okay, if AWS is a $5 billion cloud computing and this margins and then the normal Amazon looks like that. We can we can put two different valuations on those things and then suddenly Amazon was worth, you know, I forget the number, but 15% more, let's say. Um, something kind of very similar happened to Google. So they have a new CFO uh, and the first thing they did is come in and say, we're gonna give you a lot more transparency. So while and um, and then they kind of teed it up a couple quarters ago that this would be the quarter where they would do that. Uh, so everyone was really giddy. There was really broad um, analyst guesses out there about what was going on. And the way Google has done it is you have the core Google business, which is the search engine and all the stuff that are kind of like one orbit around from that. So like Gmail and stuff like that. Uh, and then you have, and then of course, double click and all that's in the core. And then you have uh, this, uh, this second category, which is kind of cute and they call it other bets. Uh, and that's where they put things like Google fiber, Google X, Google Ventures, uh, Nest is in there, um, and whatnot. So, so that was really interesting. And so, just some of the highlights that I pulled from that announcement. Um, so, their Google's growth accelerated to nineteen percent year over year, which was impressive. Um, there was a period in time, and I think this is actually tilted the other way today. It's kind of tricky to watch, uh, but Google uh, exceeded Apple as the the highest valued company. I think Google uh, at the point they crossed was five hundred fifty billion, and Apple was a measly five hundred thirty four billion. So, very interesting. And there's this there's a there's a good story in there. I probably read fifteen stories about the whole you know software versus hardware kind of a thing. Um, 
The one thing I've always watched very closely, uh, as you'll know, is CPCs, and that's the cost per click. On the Google side, it's revenue per click, but uh, in our world of retailers, it's what you pay for traffic, which is CPC. Um, that was down 13%, and Wall Street had been expecting six. So, so that was kind of a material miss, quote-unquote miss. But what happened is Google made it up on paid clicks, and that accelerated pretty dramatically um, to 31% overall. And then Google breaks it out to partner sites, and then Google owned and operated sites. Google owned and operated was up 40% on paid clicks. So, you know, it's not, they don't give you any other insight. So it's not clear to me that they, I know in PLAs, they're showing a lot more ads uh, and a lot more frequently on a lot more search terms. So I know they turned those dials, but it seems like they've been turning those dials everywhere. Uh, and, you know, because because that number was so much bigger, you kind of multiply those, you know, a minus 13 times a positive 31 and you get to kind of the 20% growth. Uh, another another tidbit was they said that they are getting a larger share of their customers' mobile ad dollars, which I took as a little bit of a stab at Facebook. Those guys are really battling it out on mobile. Um, and then they actually said it's not mobile that uh, that is driving the decline in CPCs, that it's this YouTube um ad unit that is actually kind of new and has very low mobile CPCs. Um, the thing that was interesting about other bets is I think the revenue was about in line with what people th- thought it would be. It was $354 million. A lot of that is the Nest um, and drop camera stuff. Uh, but they're spending $3 billion. And everyone was relieved because they were worried they were spending a lot more. But it's pretty amazing, you know, that the core Google can support this business that has $300 million and you know, again, that's a million with an M as as the revenue, and then the expenses are three billion. So, just a massive, massive investment going on there um, relative to you know, you certainly certainly wouldn't see a retailer doing something like that. Um, within there, the biggest spend is on Google Fiber, and they did say on the call they're going to accelerate that. So, uh, we have it coming in Raleigh. I don't know if Chicago is on the list. So we are tuned. we are not. I am jealous. I may be visiting you more often. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then two tidbits from um, the conference call. Uh, so Google said, and this is a quote, they said, our research shows that 30% of all online shopping purchases now happen on mobile phones. In fact, in the U.S., looking just at product listing ads, which is the Google shopping stuff, revenue from mobile phones exceeded desktop. This is Google's revenue. So this would be probably traffic-driven, not not transactional. Uh, revenue from mobile phones exceeded desktop on Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and through the weekend. That cyber kind of five. Not only were people using mobile ads to shop online, they also used their phones to find the best products. And then they also put in a plug for local inventory ads. And they said, um, you know, marketers at Lowe's and Target find them useful because they can measure the foot traffic that the search ads drove. And that's where you go to Google and you type, you know, um, power drill Raleigh, and it will say Lowe's has a power drill in stock at this store that's near you. And then they said, in fact, due to local inventory ads, Target reported millions of incremental store visits in the week leading up to Christmas. Uh, so I, I thought those were interested and interesting, and I, I know you you work a lot with uh, uh, omni-channel guys. So I was wondering what you thought about local inventory ads and and any other things you thought about Google. Yeah, well, uh, so certainly I like uh, local product inventory ads. Uh, there's this whole school of things that I lump together and call local search engine optimization, and to me, that's one of the biggest best ways for an omni-channel retailer to fight against Amazon at this point. It's very difficult to beat Amazon for SEO. And, you know, there are only a a few retailers that can kind of compete on a level playing field for organic search. But more and more often, when you type a search term into Google, Google either implicitly or explicitly decides 
that you care about your geography, what we call local intent in your search. And so instead of giving you the results from their general index, they give you results from this local index and they pop local ads around the side instead of the uh, exclusively the PL, the product listing ads, or I should say in addition to the to the product listing ads. So if you're a brick-and-mortar retailer and you can tell Google that you have inventory in this location and then a customer types tennis racket in Toronto, you're going to come up and Amazon isn't going to come up in that search. And so that's a, a potential huge advantage. And what Google has said is that most mobile queries, they assume that when you're on your mobile phone that you have local intent and your your phone actually appends your geography to your search terms. So at this point, they're saying that about 40% of all searches have local intent, and that pops up those local inventory ads. So that's a really powerful one, and there's some evidence that click-through rates are better on it. They have this magic words in stock nearby, and that's a, a powerful incentive to click on those ads. And you know, frankly, even when people aren't clicking on those ads, they're probably enticing people to visit those stores and make those purchases. So that's a really good tool. And it's, I guess it makes perfect sense that, that Google would be calling it out. I do think some of the spin on their mobile ad business is interesting. Uh, obviously, you know, traffic is dramatically shifting to mobile and we're using mobile more and more. So it's super important for Google to demonstrate that they're as profitable or more profitable on mobile as they are on desktop. But I don't think for retailers that's really true right now. Like it may be true that they're able to get as much revenue from mobile ads as they're getting from desktop ads. But as we know, the users that click through those ads and end up on an e-commerce site are three times less likely to buy something from that mobile session than they would have from a desktop session. And so if you're a retailer, the the value of each of those mobile clicks is lower than the value of the desktop clicks. And, you know, it may be that you feel like uh, you're going to keep addressing that and you still have to compete, so you buy the mobile ads. Like, obviously, Google does not make it very easy or, or even possible to buy desktop ads without mobile ads at this point. So I think they're parsing a little bit when they talk about, you know, their revenue is holding strong, but the value of those mobile clicks is suspect at the moment. And I, I suspect that Google is going to have to do a lot more to shore up the mobile business as they go forward. Yeah. One, one other little kind of um, little battle that went on this week that I thought was interesting was early in the week, um, Facebook announced that it's WhatsApp um, you know, division, I guess, that it acquired WhatsApp a while ago, uh, just hit a billion users. And then when Google announced, they, they had this line and it didn't add up to me until I was kind of actually working on the show and I was going to mention the WhatsApp thing. Uh, they made a really big point of saying that there's uh, seven properties now at Google that that are over a billion users. So the ones that are have been there for a while were Search, obviously. They've been there kind of forever. Uh, Android, Google Maps, Chrome, YouTube Play, and then the big new one that just joined the Billion User Property Club is Gmail. Um, so it was interesting. They made a point of saying we have seven properties at a billion because Facebook has been talking a lot about uh, – they added WhatsApp, but they've talked about you know Facebook and Instagram have been at a billion. Uh, I don't think Messenger is quite there yet. But I bet it gets there this year or early next year. So, you know, maybe Facebook will have, they have $3 billion properties and they'll get to four. So it's a little bit of a, a tit for tat uh, kind of thing going on there that was funny. Uh, and I thought it was actually a little surprising that Gmail wasn't already at a billion. 
Yeah, I'm wondering if that 10th Gmail account I signed up for uh, this week was the one that pushed him over the top. <laughs> Those are first world problems, right? When you're fighting with your competitors about how many products you have that have a billion users on them. Yeah, yeah. I think that Google search might be at a billion users a day or at least a billion queries a day, which is hard to get your brain around. Yeah, yeah. Facebook proper is almost at a billion a day. I also saw some Birchbox news last week. Did you follow that? I did. Yeah, it looked like they had um, uh, they did a little layoff. I think it was ten to fifteen percent, and they cited uh, the funding environment. And there, there's definitely kind of a you know a funding thing going on out in the private company land where you had all these guys gobbling up capital like crazy with the unicorn valuations and things. And uh, there's a general sentiment that you read a lot about now that, uh, you know, a nuclear winter is coming for that kind of funding because, um, you know, investors are going to huddle around their big investments like the Ubers and, and whatnot of the world. Uh, and there's not a lot of money around the table. So, so I think that's actually prudent. I think a lot of these private companies need to start kind of, you know, blazing a trail towards profitability a little bit faster than they may have in the previous funding environment. Um, you know, I have no insight into, you know, the Birchbox model. Um, there has been a lot of talk. So people have kind of taken that and added it in with the guilt and some of the flash sales stuff. And I saw Recode, I think it was also Jason. Um, he had a whole kind of a blurb about, you know, that, um, you know, this gimmicky commerce trends are are very short-lived and, and whatnot. And I think the jury is still out. I think flash sales have kind of, you know, maybe run their course and they, they got to kind of a billion to a billion five and then they flattened out. I don't know. I, th- I think subscription commerce still has some more legs and we'll kind of have to see. Um, you know, I, I hear great things about Dollar Shave Club. I put them in that bucket. I think they're growing up and to the right. Um, you know, Birchbox... Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I went to the store with my wife uh, in early December, and she actually liked the store better than the subscription box, and it helped her kind of get reacquainted with the brand. So, you know, the, the subscription thing kind of cuts two ways. There's definitely a convenience. Um, the thing that's tricky is there's kind of two models. There's the we'll send you a bunch of stuff, and maybe you like you know a percentage of it, and just keep the rest. And I think the challenge as a consumer there is you feel like you're kind of wasteful. You're, you know, if you keep, if you use half the birch box and kind of just give away or throw away the other half, it just feels very wasteful. Um, the other model is like a trunk club or stitch fix where, you know, they curate it, send it to you, and then you send back the stuff you don't want. So it's less wasteful, but the economics for the company, obviously, because of all this stuff coming back, get way, way more complicated. So, you know, I, I think. I think we'll have to kind of wait and see. I think these guys are iterating towards kind of a 2.0 and a 3.0. Um, if you could decide what comes before it comes to you as a consumer, that you know, I think that solves that problem of the wastage. Um, but you know, it makes it more complex. So we'll have to kind of see how these iterate and which ones survive and thrive. But I, I think kind of it's a little early for the 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 death of subscription models. Yeah, I do think the the whole category of subscription is broader than just Birchbox. Like there's certainly one popular type of subscription service. And you obviously mentioned another one in Trunk Club, but there's also a lot more of this mundane subscription services like, for example, uh, Blue Apron that I think we talked about a number of episodes ago or, you know, Amazon subscribe and saves and, and some of those just block and tackle utility replenishment subscriptions. And I think there's potentially a lot of legs in those models. I think those are really just getting started. Uh, the Birchbox thing, you know, 
certainly think you're smart to to uh, cut your costs and try to get closer to profitability before you run out of runway with your investors. I do get a little annoyed, though, not specifically at Birchbox, but lots of these VC-backed startups, you know, that can't raise enough money to continue operations, and they talk about, but that's not a reflection of their model being flawed, almost as if the only way to start a company is to have investors keep pouring money into you unprofitably until you have some kind of, you know, huge event or, or you know, hit, you hit some inflection point. Because I, I was looking at the e-commerce retailers in North America recently, and there's like 25 e-commerce sites that are doing over $100 million a year in revenue that are self-funded, that have grown, that have been cash flow positive since very early in their history and have grown through their own revenue. So I, I like, I, I sometimes don't accept this notion that, the only way to to start a company is to raise four rounds of capital. Yeah. But I do think Jason's point in his article, like he called a lot of this stuff gimmick commerce, right? And he talked about flash sales and daily deal sales and potentially some of these flavors of subscription as being uh, gimmicks. And the premise being that the gimmicks haven't really had legs, that if anything, they've been fads um, and that block and tackling, you know, with traditional retailing is online has been much more successful. I think there is room for more diversity of models. And, you know, as you know, there, there's a bunch of different models for e-commerce. And interestingly, the, the model that clearly is most profitable, when you look at the businesses that are doing the best worldwide in, in e-commerce, the, the model that jumps out at you is the marketplace model. It seems like there are these guys at the top of the ecosystem that, that are running marketplaces, and it's hugely profitable because you have very low incremental cost to operate that marketplace on top of your, your existing operations, and the take rate you get is almost pure profit. And I, I guess I, I'm, what's interesting there is you see Amazon do that, you see Alibaba do that, you see Etsy do that, and then you have a lot of the kind of next tier down of retailers say, gosh, we should launch a marketplace and and that's where I'm I'm somewhat interested and curious. Can the world sustain like all these retailers offering marketplaces? And is there value to the consumer in in having all of those marketplaces? Or are marketplaces kind of winner takes all that only work for the the biggest players in in each of these categories? This is obviously a question we think a lot about. And you could kind of you know if you kind of put a pin in Amazon and their selection at at between three hundred and four hundred million products, and you kind of say, all right, if we had 10 marketplaces at that scale, what's the point? You know, if everyone has everything, then it's kind of, you know, uh, you know, a, a stalemate and it's kind of boring shopping experience. But, but I think that's such an endpoint that we'd probably never get there. So, so I'll give you an example the the way I, the way I've come to think about this is uh, just looking at conversion rates. Um, so, you know, your average retailer has a conversion rate of about three to 4%. And there's some people overperform that and some people under, I, I think what happens is this model, especially the omni-channel model where you have merchants and they go out, they find suppliers, they, they curate a set of goods from those suppliers and they put it in front of consumers that really works in a store model because you have this, this fixed real estate, you know, you've only got X square feet of product and you have to curate I think moving that online breaks and that's the secret sauce of marketplaces is consumers come and they search and they really, 
they they will look at the curation maybe 10% of the time, the homepage and the featured products and whatnot. Um, but really, they they are very much search-driven. Um, that's even how they're they're kind of starting at the top of the funnel. You know, they're searching for digital cameras and then they're getting specific and whatnot. Um, so what we have found, if you look at uh, some of the marketplaces that are, are more vertical versus horizontal, like Best Buy, I'll, I'll pick on them. Um, when Best Buy first did their iteration of the marketplace, they were trying to fill the shelves with things outside of electronics with the marketplace. And that didn't really work because people weren't looking for that at Best Buy. But then they, in their 2.0 kind of pivot, they started actually bringing in more electronics stuff that, that some of it overlapped with what they offered and was competitive, but some of it was filling in a bunch of holes in their selection. And what you ended up with was, uh, you know, I think that's done really well. And the the, the overall uh, the search results are fuller, and the conversion rate goes up. So you're out there buying all these customers for X dollars, and if you can just give them more selection, your conversion rate will go up. And that's such an important part of the algebra of e-commerce that uh, that alone makes money kind of rain out. And then the fact that that incremental conversion rate is from something you're getting a commission rate on that's pure margin, that that kind of amplifies it. So so I actually think there's there's a lot of room to run for marketplaces and a lot of places where they could be. So, you know, I could imagine apparel folks or sporting goods or um, Staples has a marketplace that seems to be going very well. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting room to run and um, you're just kind of taking this audience and monetizing it better. And sure, you know, you could argue that that inventory is other places, but the audience is in other places. They're at your site, ready to buy. And if you don't have a huge amount of selection for them, they're going to go somewhere else. So that, that's kind of how I've kind of gotten to to reconciling. You know, maybe we do get out to that point where there's 300 million everywhere, but uh, I think there's a lot of paths on the way there. And some of the smartest marketplace operators, even some of the more niche ones, um, they get so much data, and it's actually much more informative than the intuition that merchants have uh, and the pitches that vendors provide those merchants because you can see things in the data when you have this massive third-party selection that you just wouldn't wouldn't get if you didn't have it. Yeah, I, I do think there's a little bit of this people defending their turf, that traditional retailer merchants feel like they have magic, that they, they have this special skill that other people don't have to pick the winners and losers. And I think some of those retailers that grew up like that, it's hard for them to get their brain around the fact that the market could decide what the winners and losers are potentially better than a person sitting up in an ivory tower. And I, I, w- I wonder if that's held some retailers back from sort of fully embracing the marketplace model, even though there's pretty clear evidence that it's it's a smart business decision. Yeah. Well, that's all the the news that I had around e-commerce and retail this week. I will look forward to catching up with you again next week. Have a great week. Cheers. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 